Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. The handout reference during this presentation is available for download on the audio section of our website. Good evening, everyone. Thank you for coming out tonight. Let us begin with a prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us, and lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our speaker this evening is a graduate of Oxford University in England, where he grew up. Professor David Clayton was received into the church in London in 1993. He is provost of Pontifex University, a new education platform dedicated to the Catholic intellectual tradition. David is visiting fellow at Thomas More College of Liberal Arts in New Hampshire, where he taught on the faculty for six years. As well as having an international reputation as a painter, with major commissions in both the UK and the US, he is a regular contributor to the New Liturgical Movement website, has published many articles and two books about sacred art and culture and their connection to the liturgy. His latest book, The Way of Beauty, Liturgy, Education, and Inspiration for Family, School, and College, was published in July of 2015 by Angelical Press. Please join us in welcoming back to the Institute of Catholic Culture, David Clayton. Thank you very much. Um, thank you very much for that kind introduction, Dan. Um, and... I'm going to start actually by doing a repetition. I think we're going to start with prayer, but what I'm going to ask you to do is stand, look at the face of Christ. We're just going to do the Our Father uh, as we might in the domestic church, um, and we're going to sing it. And trust me, this is the only time I'm going to ask you to do this this evening. Um, so please, will you just pray the Our Father with me? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us and lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil. Amen. God be in our thoughts and words and deeds. Send your Holy Spirit to guide us that we may complete your will. Grace responding to grace, may the beauty of our work inspire those who see it to love as Christ loved, that through praise of you and charity to others, all may know his peace and joy. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. So, a lot of people 
asked me, um, how do you pray with images? Uh, I've seen books that long, uh, praying with icons. Uh, You've just learned how to pray with images. You just pray as you would normally, but you address the person. Um, And all the, the dynamic of the interaction should be controlled by the artist. Um, so I've done lectures on that in the past. I'm not going to go into a lot of detail on that in this, this class, uh, but uh, I'm just anticipating some questions that crop up. Um, very good to sing, also to consider posture, so that you bow at the name of the Trinity. Um, and then if you're engaging your eyes, if you've got a little incense burner, the whole person, all the senses are engaged, um, and if we're engaging both the body and the soul, the mind, if you like, uh, the intellect and the will, then the whole person is conforming to that pattern of prayer. Um, I've subtitled this a, a beautiful pattern of prayer. Um, and uh, what I'm going to do is talk about, first of all, as I do very often when I give talks, I just try and relate what I'm doing to the overall purpose of the Christian life. And In fact, every class that I teach, I try and uh, begin by saying, this is what our goal as a Christian is, and this is how what you're going to learn in this class relates to that. And I always feel that if I can't do that, then I shouldn't be teaching it. Uh, there has to be some reason uh, for doing that. So, this is an icon of the, the Transfiguration. It's painted by my teacher, who's an Englishman called Aidan Hart. Um, and many of you, I'm sure, will recognize the scene. We have Christ on Mount Tabor, uh, flanked by the two prophets who are seen by the three apostles um, who are in awe and wonder. And Christ is transfigured, he is shining with the uncreated divine light. Um, And it is always seen as an anticipation of uh, his heavenly glory, if you like, that wasn't seen by the apostles at that point and uh, will be seen by all of us uh, in heaven, in union with God, uh, if uh, we hope. uh, God, yes, if we get there. (laughs) Thank you. Um, And... uh, This transformation, um, this union with God, is open to all of us, and this is the goal of the Christian life, that uh, we want to be shining with that divine light. The icon of Christ also represents, of course, the mystical body of Christ, which is the church. And one hopes that the church is shining with that light and drawing people to it. And each of us in this life can be a pixel of light in that body, drawing others to the mystical body, playing our part um, according to our personal vocation, according to the the plan that God has set out for us, which is unique. Um, Every person is unique. Everybody has a unique plan, which defines his or her place in in the church. Um, it's not necessary, I don't believe, for each of us to do that. This will go on regardless of us. But uh, we are offered this place, and it is to our greater joy when we participate, uh, as Benedict says, in the creative love of God 
uh, when in uh, take it, discerning our will um, or God's will for us. Um, and so here's a quote from Corinthians: "Behold, we are, beho- but we are all beholding the glory of the Lord with open face, are transformed, we are changed uh, into the same image from glory to glory as by the Spirit of the Lord." So. In this life, by degrees, not fully till we get to heaven, we can partake of the divine nature, supernaturally transformed. And this is the goal of the Christian life, to complete that journey. Um, And to the degree that it happens in this life, we draw others to God. Here is uh, another uh, image. It's a Gothic-style image, uh, similar in many ways to an icon, a strict understanding of the icon. By the way, if you want to know uh, what makes an icon an icon and a gothic image a gothic image, then that's what my book is about. Uh, but also, uh, I've done uh, talks here at the Institute of Catholic Culture describing these distinctions. Um, here we have Duccio in the, I think it's the 14th century or the, the uh, late 13th century uh, in Italy, um, painting the same scene uh, bathing everything in gold, which is the, uh, another representation of the uncreated light. And those halos of the saints are symbolic representations of the light of Christ shining out of them. Um, now, this is going to be a story. I, I, uh, I was invited to come and speak here about prayer. And really, what I'm going to talk about is the prayer that enables us to participate in that goal of the Christian life. Uh, I'm going to describe it to you, not really as an expert. Uh, the, the, reason, the fact that I wrote half of a book, uh, with, I wrote it with someone called Lila Lawler, um, called, about prayer in the home, I think is the reason I got the invitation. Um, but all that we, both of us, were relating in there were things that, we, just what we do, what we were told to do, um, and how we put all of this together in a balanced and harmonious prayer life so that um, it becomes something that is a help to the pious and not the hindrance. Um, I don't know if you've had any of those experiences where people tell you this wonderful new uh, plan of spirituality and you know that the only people who are really going to listen to it and do it are the pious who are then really are just signing up for one more thing to feel guilty about because they don't manage to do it. Um, now, if that's what's going to end up happening, then I failed. The idea here, and the idea of the book, is to try and almost take a step back and say, we can't relate every prayer, every devotion, but what is the hierarchy of prayer, um, and what is the way in which we can put all of this together so it works with the lives that each of us has, um, and is a support to it. It makes the, the burden lighter, not makes us feel more guilty because we feel we're not ticking the boxes. This is supposed to be a joyful life. Um, that's certainly what was offered to me. Um, that's why I became a Catholic. I believed that I'd be happier uh, as a result. So, this is about worship and transformation. Um, why worship? Well... The ultimate form of prayer for each of us and the, the highest activity is the worship of God in the sacred liturgy. It's there that we have an encounter with the living God and everything else is, should be ordered to that in some way 
should be in harmony with that, uh, derived from it and pointing us to it, so that we have this supernatural transformation, which is a life of joy that draws others towards Christ. And this really is what the new evangelization is. I'm going to talk a little bit about it. Uh, The book we wrote, we had very much in mind uh, this discussion of the new evangelization, which... Uh, as you know, it's a buzzword. Everybody wants to talk about it. We feel we've got to, we've got to um, use it, however, however that is. I, I mean, if you talk to people, uh, I once asked a class at Thomas More College what it was, and some of them thought, well, it's just like the old evangelization, except you use Twitter and Facebook. Um, <laughs> and it's actually, it, they were right in one respect. It is like the old evangelization. It's just that we need to discover what it was that caused, for example, the early church to grow so dramatically in the early days? What was it that the non-Christians saw in the Christians that made them want to belong to the church? Um, And uh, it's also about cultural transformation because it is in the culture, it is in the daily life, the lives that we lead, that we engage with others. And some of us are called to be cloistered or to be reclusive. That's, you know, we're contemplatives and it's f- focused very much more on prayer, um, but very, very few. Uh, Aidan Hart, was at what, when I met him, he was a, um, a, a monk. He never took final vows, so he, he eventually he uh, left. He was an Orthodox monk. He left and got married and had a family. Um, and he, but he was what he called a rassible monk for 17 years, I think, and he lived in a hermitage in a part of England where when the, the, uh, the sun went down, you could see no uh, electric lights, and those, they do exist in England, isn't that overpopulated? Um, and what happened was people used to come and visit him. He lived, he lived on his own, and he said for him, actually, it was a quieter life to get married and have children than it was to be a hermit. <laughs> Uh, he used to get over 3,000-plus visitors a year coming to this remote spot um, because he was a contemplative and he attracted people with what he had. Even when he was trying to hide himself away, people would somehow discern that he was there and come to him. Uh, and that's what we're talking about, this light of Christ. It's something that the inner eye sees, if you like, the spirit, the eye of the soul. Um, and But... That's unusual. <laughs> Most of us, uh, we leave, lead lives amongst all people. And really, we, have to, we cannot be afraid of engaging uh, in, the, in the wider culture. And uh, I have absolute confidence in the fact that if we actually lead lives which are consistent with a Christian culture, it is more beautiful, it is more attractive, more persuasive than anything else, even than Hollywood or whatever you think is the worst aspects of pop culture. You say, well, this is the lowest common denominator. You know, they've got sex and drugs and rock and roll to sell what they do. What have we got? Well, the answer is we've got the light of Christ, which is more attractive than even sex and drugs and rock and roll, believe it or not, um, if we show it to them. That's the thing. We have to be part of that solution. And uh, this is what... Uh, the discussion of the new evangelization is about. And this is what has produced um, these books. Now, uh, I'm going to talk a little bit about what it is. If you want to read about it, 
the phrase, I think, was coined by John Paul II um, originally, but Benedict picked up on this when he was Cardinal Ratzinger, and he wrote a, something like a seven-page paper on the new evangelization in about 2001. I've only found it in translation on the EWTN website. So if you put in Cardinal Ratzinger, New Evangelization, EWTN, into your search engine, you'll find it. Um, Very, very simple. Uh, And what he says is, while we shouldn't ignore modern means of communication, so it might include Facebook and Twitter, um, he says that we have to understand what evangelization is, and it means to show people the path towards happiness. Why do people do anything that they do? It's because they believe at some level it's going to make them happier if they do so. They're not going to join the church if they don't think it's going to make them happier. Why are they going to do so? Because it's down to us to demonstrate the art of living joyfully, which he says is a lost art. And then he describes how we develop this. And he says it is through prayer. Uh, It's about our prayer lives. We are each, at some level, we're not all meant to be the monk in the hermit where we're so contemplative that we try and hide away and yet people find us. Uh, But at some level, each of us is meant to be a contemplative. Uh, We are supposed to pray um, and shine with that light of Christ. And uh, no matter how active those other aspects of our lives are, uh, we must learn to pray. Uh, And he says we need this. We need a new evangelization capable of being heard by a world that does not find access to classic evangelization. So what might classic evangelization be? Uh, Well, I imagine when I read that, someone standing at Hyde Park Corner, if anyone's ever been to London, standing, they actually have a, a box which you just climb up on and you harangue people... Uh, Now, there are some people, I believe, who really could connect and achieve great things doing that. I don't think I could. Um, I've heard one or two people describe how they're sort of magnetic in their speaking for the good, and it works. But he's saying that for the most part, there is a resistance to that. Uh, We need something else that sidesteps the prejudices they have. Um, And a lot of the discussion... uh, that I've heard relates to the fact that in the West, at least, which is where the, this focus on the new evangelization occurs, we live in what's called a post-Christian world, which, in other words, people are no longer Christian, but they come from families where maybe their parents were, and it's their parents who rejected it, or perhaps uh, they were brought up Christian, but they've rejected themselves. We're probably two, three, four generations away now from faithful Christians in many cases. But that doesn't stop people thinking that they know about it. Uh, They think they know enough about Christianity to know they don't like it. Um, And so uh, engaging people, trying to get them to see the truth, uh, my experience is that uh, perhaps I flatter myself, but even if I box them in with logic and reason, it does not convert. Uh, However eloquent I am, uh, unless someone is ready to listen, they're not going to. We cannot persuade. The first job is to get people to want what we have. Then they'll listen and then they'll ask questions and they'll soak it up. Uh, But how do we get through that first barrier? And this is what the new evangelization 
is, uh, is about. And he says that Christ is the way. He's the path, both the path and the final destination. That if we reflect Christ, so through us, we become walking icons of Christ. Um, and if you doubt that this is, this is possible, it seems amazing to me. We partake of the di- divine nature. Um, but Benedict talks of uh, each of us being called to participate in the creative love of God. Um, we can be part of the solution, the supernatural solution. Um, and Maximus the Confessor um, was a church father from, I think, about the 8th century, uh, who said that, and he's following a long tradition, but it's in his writing that I read this little quote, um, that God became man so that man could become God. And he said, we will be like God in all things except distinct in being. In other words, uh, we really, it, it, this is not a nuanced thing. This is absolutely what it sounds like. And when our will coincides with God's will, there can be supernatural effects around us. What we need is the faith to believe it's going to happen. Um, now, it's easy to see how this can be misconstrued, and suddenly we think, well, look, I can put this at the service of me. Uh, we have to be very careful of that, and I'll talk about that in a second. But when we, to the degree that we do this, by, as I say, it's by degrees in this life, we show people Christ. And what we're showing them at some level that they will pick up just through the glint of the eye, if you like, um, is not only what it is that they're aiming for in life so that they ha- their life has a purpose, but simultaneously the means by which they achieve it. And they will ask. Okay, a little bit more of Benedict. Um, he says that... Uh, the new evangelization is per- personal and supernatural transformation. This is me paraphrasing, by the way, so there's errors in it, it's mine, it's not Pope Benedict. Um, personal and supernatural transformation in Christ leading to a happy life. We, our goal is to be happy um, so that others can see the, the joy of Christ, if you like, in us. Um, and again, don't feel that there's this obligation suddenly to paste a smile on your face uh, like the sort of uh, shiny-toothed uh, evangelist, of, you know, TV evangelist. That's not what it's about. This is something that uh, is, becomes our natural mode of living. Um, and uh, prayer is the means by which we do it. And he comes up with a hierarchy. He says that... The liturgy is the highest prayer with the Eucharist at the centre. So the liturgy, for the most part, there are other aspects of the rites, but that's the mass and the liturgy of the hours. And you're going to hear me talking liturgy of the hours, liturgy of the hours, liturgy of the hours. I did a whole talk here before for Father Hezekiah on uh, the liturgy of the hours. Uh, It's not that it's the only thing, it's just that it's the thing that is most commonly omitted, I think. Uh, by people in their personal piety. And it's a, it's a bridge between the mass and daily living. And the general instruction of the Liturgy Hours actually says its purpose is to sanctify the day. In other words, it gives us that special grace to bring out what is contained par excellence, if you like, in the Eucharist, to take that out into the day. Uh, that's what it's there for. Um, then he describes paraliturgical prayer, which by that I mean, uh, or I understand, 
that he means prayers that are similar to the liturgy, might be done in common, um, but are not themselves liturgy. What they do is they bring us closer to that liturgical prayer. Um, so it might be things at the highest level, things like, I think, the, the office of the uh, Blessed Virgin Mary, the little office of the Blessed Virgin Mary, is not actually strictly liturgy. It is uh, a liturgical devotion, very clearly structured on it. It's based on the Psalms, and it's paving the way to give us an entrance into it. Uh, the rosary might even be counted as paraliturgical, so it's lower than the Mass and the Liturgy of the Hours in its power and effectiveness, to use the phrase of the Catechism. Um, how is it liturgical? Well, uh, at a very simple level, the traditional rosary has 150, uh, five times t- 10, it's 150, yeah, mis- uh, repetitions of the Hail Marys, and that corresponds to 150 psalms. The psalms are the, the book of the liturgy, if you like, that St. Thomas Aquinas says contains all of theology. So that's why they're used so much in our worship. And so what it's doing is creating this pattern of prayer, which numerically is keyed into the ultimate expression of that which is in the liturgy. So uh, it should lead us into these higher forms. Um, and then personal prayer. Now, this is what it sounds like. Just what Benedict says we do in the quiet of our own hearts and in our own rooms. Everybody has a personal way of talking to God. And all of these things are appropriate for Catholics. So it's not that we reject what uh, personal prayer. Uh, it's that we, it's all, all of the above. Now, as you can see... This is a, there's a lot there. There's centuries of devotions, paraliturgical prayers, personal prayers can mean anything. Uh, so uh, what Lila Lawler and I were trying to do was work out how do you structure this so that each of these things is in harmony. It's going to be different for different people. Uh, but the, and we describe these principles in the book, The Little Oratory. But the Um, The key, I think, is a liturgical piety. In other words, a prayer life that understands that the highest expression, not just of prayer, but of human living, is the worship of God in the sacred liturgy. And everything else should come out of that. Um, And also that this... uh, uh, Other things being equal, should I say, uh, it's very good to get advice on this. If you can get a spiritual director who can help you to, so that it fits with your life. It's, uh, the, the amount that we do will depend on your state in life, what you have to do, your other responsibilities. But if we get this right, this really can ease the way through the day. Um, and he says that through this, we must be assimilated into Christ to attain union with God, and we participate in his suffering and love. So it's not just that we're joyful, but... We have a joy which transcends even suffering in the way that Christ suffered on the cross. Um, this is what's available to us uh, as Christians. Um, and our way of life, just our very being, who we are, the way we conduct ourselves, uh, offers hope of, this, of eternal life and just judgment, he says. He says these are the themes that people uh, seek in modern society. Um, I don't think he means that if you ask people in modern society, what are you missing in life? They say, I need evidence of eternal life and just judgment. Um, 
I think what he's saying is that whether people are aware of this or not, this is that through their activities, it indicates to him this is what they're striving for, and this is the answer to the, to the angst which so many people have. And we have to not only we have to demonstrate just how do you do that? Do you go around, you know, with a billboard saying "Eternal Life, Eternal Life"? No, it's it's who we are. Christ is the answer, and our way of life will somehow communicate that we have a faith in eternal life because we have hope in our lives, for example. Um, and just judgment, well, the best way of demonstrating that we believe in just judgment is to strive to be a just judge ourselves. It's through our own interpersonal relationships with others. I cannot hope to do this, even begin to do this, without God's grace. I need that, that uh, participation in this prayer life, even to think about striving for these ideals. Okay, and I'm just going to give you this quote. Um, the new evangelization. Ah, here we go. This isn't the quote I was thinking, but this is, the, this is another one. New evangelization depends largely on the domestic church, the Christian family, to the extent it succeeds in living love as communion and service as a reciprocal gift, open to all as a journey of permanent conversion. In other words, it's... It's not just, okay, now I'm signing up, I'm being received into the church. It's a continuous process of supernatural transformation, supported by the grace of God, reflects the splendor of Christ in the world and the beauty of the divine trinity. So he talks about the need for schools of prayer. The family is the greatest place for that school. Um, For children... He's addressing families there. That's why he mentions the family. And somebody asked me about this just before. Um, this book is not just for families. Everybody has a home. Everybody has uh, communities to which they relate. And even if I live on my own um, and the communities to which I relate I go out to, um, th- this is going to help me uh, in this conversion. I can go out and be part of a community and bring community, if you like, through my interactions with others, we can create the, the fellowship and the community we seek around us to the degree that we're able to be part of a community with others. And the first step, the first thing we have to look at is ourselves here. And so uh, if there are single people here, this most definitely includes you. This is... Uh, uh, someone... Uh, said they read the website for the book and said, you know, I I'm not sure it's for me. I say, well, it, it, it most certainly is, and I want you to be aware of that. Uh, because I had it in mind when I wrote it. I was a bachelor for years and years. Okay, so. Um, and the centre of prayer is, we talk about this in the book, we describe um, the traditional way of creating a domestic church. This is an icon corner, We've got Eastern icons here, and you have this traditional layout where you see Our Lady on the left, Christ in glory in some form on the right, and in the centre you have the suffering Christ, um, and then you have other saints that you're devoted to. Um, and this becomes the focus for prayer uh, in the family, um, and we describe how, or in the home, but in the family, in the ideal, it's, it's, the, it's dad who leads the prayers, so... And I've talked in the past, I've come here and said that uh, this means men, uh, we're looking to learn how to chant and actually uh, start singing. 
Uh, and if you can do what we did before, this is not ornate stuff. If you can do what we did before, which is actually, it's easier to sing as we sang before than it is to talk. Because if I'm talking, I'm modulating, I'm emphasizing certain things. My voice goes up and then it goes down. Well, if I pray as I did, I just do the Our Father like that and I just talk like that and that becomes the mode in which I pray. And if you can do that, you can sing your prayers. Okay, so nobody has an excuse unless they have no voice at all. Um, and we, we discuss this in the, in the book. It doesn't have to be icons. By the way, we talk about an icon corner because it's a tradition that's retained, not exclusively. There are, there, it's part of the Western tradition. There are, and people tell me, you know, my family always did this. We had uh, pictures and a place that we prayed. Uh, but it's associated today, I think, most commonly with the Eastern Church. Um, but really, these can be any images that come from, ideally, I think, from, come from the, tradition, the artistic traditions of the church. And we discuss why in the book um, that really you feel nourish your prayer. Um, I should say, incidentally, that if you're worried about where you're going to get those images from, um, you've at least got somewhere to start because you have about eight or nine paintings in the back of the book, the little oratory, which can be removed. And we actually made them a standard size. And Charlie McKinney, who's the editor, the head of Sophia Institute Press, that he actually went down to Walmart took the pictures out and checked that they fit a $5 frame from Walmart. So they fit the standard size. Uh, You don't have to do a $5 frame from Walmart, but the point about this is that it fits a standard frame size, and so you can begin with those. And if you don't like the paintings in the back, then that's great. You can go and find some that are even better. Let's put it like that. Um, But we, we describe to you how to do this, the process of praying, the process of praying in the family, and the goal is to, ta- is to make the home and the family home, if you have a family, the, the centre, uh, the generation, the, um, the power, if you like, the, 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 the power centre that's generating the power of the new evangelization, not just through the education and the effect it has on the children, but if I'm a single person, the effect that it has on me. It begins in my daily prayer, uh, and that's what we describe. Now, here's another quotation. I'm going to talk to you now about how I discovered this. Um, I have to say I am immensely impressed that um, so many people have turned up uh, with the prospect of listening to me talk about prayer for two hours, two fifty minutes. Um, so I thought, how can I make this interesting? I could go through a whole list, you know, in the morning do this, in the morning do this. Thought, well, I don't think I'll do that. I'm not going to hold attention for two hours if I do that. So, um, what I'm going to do is tell you my story, um, how I was evangelized by somebody who did just what I've been describing, how he showed the faith to me, how he took into account my situation, um, what he passed on to me, which was prayer, right from the start. The first thing he told me to do was pray and he told me how and I was a bitter um, anti-Christian atheist. Uh, My picture of Christians before I came uh, to the faith was sort of um, offensively nice people 
who wave tambourines and frankly, you know, you just do not want to be associated with, just an embarrassment to be with. This is, this is my picture of Christians. I did not want anything they had. Now, I'm going to tell you how he dealt with me to, uh, very, very quickly. Um, and I realise now that what he was doing instinctively was passing on this, exactly what I'm describing. I saw Christ in him. I wouldn't have known it at the time. And I'm going to tell you how he introduced this to me. And gradually, through this process, I picked up all these aspects that I learned and eventually put into the book. Okay. Um, and here's the quotation. My brothers, so this is St. Paul in Romans, I implore you by God's mercy to offer your very selves to him, a living sacrifice, dedicated and fit for his acceptance. The worship offered by mind and heart. So this is the focus, worship again. Um, Adapt yourselves no longer to the pattern of this present world. Let your minds be remade and your whole nature thus transformed. Then you will be able to discern the will of God and know what is good and acceptable and perfect. This guy was called David, and he said to me, if you do these things, you will discover what it is you are meant to do as a human being. He didn't say you'll discover God's will, because then I'd have run, okay? He said, you will find out, I can promise you. This is what happened to me, he said, and I knew that it was true because, or I felt it was, because I had friends who'd also been helped by him. This guy, he died... 18 years ago now, so this is 28, 27 years ago that I met him. Um, And at his funeral, there were 600 people who came, and most of them were people that he had helped in this this way. And he had this way of engaging people, okay? And and a lot of it, you just don't know what it is. Uh, You know, there's something about him that made you trust him. Um, But I'm going to tell that story... And this is what he told me, that if you do this, um, I remember sitting in his uh, flat, his apartment in Chelsea in London, and the first cup of tea I had with him, I went round for this chat, and I was a bit suspicious. He was, I was 26, he was in his early 60s, and you think, what's going on here? I'm a bit worried about this. Um, And he said, what do you want to do? In life. And I said, well, I'd like to paint, but I just I don't know how to do it. I can't afford to go. He said, I'd like to do things like that. And he just said to me, if you do what, I, what I'm going to suggest to you, uh, I believe that there's no reason why you can't become an artist. That's what he said, and I, I'm happy to show you how to do it. What he didn't tell me until later was that those paintings on the wall were actually his paintings, um, and he had done the same thing. He actually exhibited in Cork Street in London, and... Um, he told me the story about it. He just said that he went to get them framed and the guy said to him, Who, where do you exhibit? And he said, I don't, I don't exhibit anywhere. And so in the end, he ended up um, exhibiting in these galleries in London. Um, but he didn't tell me that. He just said, I believe that if you do this, you can become um, an artist. And he never uh, helped me directly by giving me connections or anything like that. He gave me the, the connection that matters, which is God. Um, okay now the product of this all of this are a number of things Um, so 
The little oratory is one of them. All of these things, really, ever since I met David, and he set me on this path that has allowed me from being directionless, without a faith, not a Christian, uh, frustrated, bitter, uh, very sour. Um, if, you know, I, as I say, if I saw somebody who was happy, especially a happy Christian, my job was to go to them and explain to them that they were wrong. Okay, that was what I saw my responsibility was. Um, And I was pretty aggressive about it. I was antagonized. Why was I antagonized by those people? Well, because if somebody really did know how to live life, I would have to admit that I didn't. And my pride wouldn't allow me to admit that. Okay, so I wanted to really, I wanted to destroy that happiness uh, there's a phrase, again, that David mentioned. He gave it to me. It's a common phrase, though. Misery likes company. Um, you can have two reactions when you're dealing with people. Uh, they will try and pull you down, um, or they will uh, they'll want what you have. And eventually, I'm just glad that I had the same reaction when I met somebody, which was not to try and undermine what they were doing, but to say, why don't you tell me what it is you do? I want to know. And it was only because I was beaten into submission through misery and unhappiness. I, I was 26, uh, very, very unhappy. Uh, I had an active social life still, but I was lonely. And I really was at the point of thinking, I just don't know what it is to do to be happy. I wondered whether I was just expecting too much from life. Um, and I, was, I, I could no longer complain to people about it because... Um, well basically I was driving my friends away I was whinging and whining so much I just didn't know where to go and one of them eventually said why don't you talk to this guy David and uh, I've been talking to him and I met him for a cup of coffee and um, I'll tell you what he told me So, but one of the products of this are the prayers that he gave me I haven't described in detail everything that he did uh, but part of this is what is in there The other thing is that he told me a way to become an artist. I said, I want to be an artist. And he told me exactly what to do when when you have a life of faith as to how to become one. Even though I couldn't afford to go to art school, I currently, I was artist in residence at Thomas More College uh, for seven years. I lectured in liberal arts. I've written a book on the culture and the liturgy. Um, I have no formal qualification in any of this. Okay? I've never been formally taught. I did science at university. Um, but he told me that if I followed this path, that, that what would happen is that this life would open up in, in front of me. And uh, that it was possible, if God wanted it, for me to become an artist. And at the very least, I should try to be one. And, and he told me what to do. I, and don't worry, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to keep you in suspense forever. I'm going to describe it. But sometime later, the, the way of beauty, by the way, is uh, a description of uh, my investigation. What I had to do when I decided I wanted to become an artist was I realized that the art schools did not teach people to do the sort of art that I wanted to do. Um, I, want, I was interested in traditional art. This was some years later. I was now, by now a Catholic, and I wanted to paint to serve the church. Um, I didn't know where to go. And so I had to do a lot of research into where you get the skills, into the traditions of the church, so that um, I could understand what it was I was trying to do. 
um, into the spiritual formation of artists. How do you engender creativity? How do you uh, give some, make someone open to inspiration so that they follow the will of God? Is it just haphazard? Or is there actually a way of doing this? Can you, can you, is there a formation that can help certain people? Um, and I found that there was, that there, that there are things in common that all the Christian artists, or, or many, should we say, uh, had in their formation up until about the 18th century. Um, and so I wrote it in a book, um, and this book was published. Um, and incidentally, I got that name there, that's a little reminder of me, Father Timothy Verdon. I don't know if anybody knows who he is. He is a... Um, a priest, an American, who was an art history professor at Yale. And I st- at one point I studied portrait painting. Uh, I said I have no, no formal qualification. I did go to Florence for a year and study portrait painting in an atelier. Um, and, but I, I didn't get a qualification for it, but I did study it. Now, while I was there, everybody was trying to get in to see this guy because uh, he was an American, so lots of the People I was uh, studying with were English and American, so they could talk to him. He was a late vocation, having been a Yale art history professor, and he was now on the staff at um, the Duomo in Florence. So people, people felt that if he, he had a reputation for being an expert in art with connections in the church. If he liked the look of your work, then you know, the commissions would just come flowing. Um, consequently, he was very good at, at avoiding being seen. Um, and it, but it was only by chance I, I met somebody who said, oh, I know that guy. And so eventually I saw him. I could tell he was very, very reluctant. But he, he was very friendly with this person who was recommending. So I went in. I went up to his apartment and he, and he said, what do you want? And I said, well, I've got this idea for an art training and an art school. Um, and I'd like to know whether you think it is any good. And he said, OK, tell it to me. And I just went into it. So, you know, I, 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 this is one subject I did know about. And so I just told him. And he listened to me. And he asked one or two questions to me that I thought um, indicated that he was listening and understanding. And at the end of it, he said, yes, I think you should do this. I thought, this is great. And he said, and... And I thought, right, now he's going to give me the connection. He said, but I can't help you, he said. But I don't think you need help. I think this is your personal vocation. I don't know what he'd seen in the way I described it. He said, I think this is what you ought to do. And he said, but I don't even know whether that means you will succeed. Uh, But I do know that it means you should strive to do this. Because if you do so... Whether you're aware of it or not, you, well, one, you will be fulfilled. You will feel joy in life. This is what you have to do to have a joyful life. Um, and secondly, when you do that, you will draw others to the faith. You may never be aware of it, but it's that the life that you have on that path. It's not about whether or not I finally get the art school founded, um, but strive, following that homing signal, if you like, is going to make you the person that God wants you to be, and then you will draw people to the faith. And this is what the Christian life is about. Um, and so I was kind of pleased with that. You know, I, was, it gave, I suppose gave me something higher. It gave me a good story to tell. But um, really it was encouraging in, in many, many ways, joking aside. Um, 
But the product of that is in there, and as a result of that book, I was approached and asked to create a whole course based upon um, what I wrote in that book. And uh, this, of course, is not what I set out to do. When I first talked to David, I said, I want to paint. Uh, I'd never even heard of that. I didn't know that this was a possibility. Uh, but this is being launched this week, actually. We're just uh, getting going. It's an online course. First course is taught by Father Sebastian Carnazzo, who I think many of you will know, Father Hezekiah's brother. Um, so still places there if you want to sign on. But... Uh, and if you miss this week, don't worry, it's, everything's going to be recorded. It's an online program. You can go on any time after that and sign up. Um, now, the reason I mention that is, well, first of all, it is publicity. I, you know, I'll admit it. It's a, I was going to say, I said to Dan initially, I, I'm going to do some thinly veiled uh, uh, presentation, parts of the presentation, just thinly veiled uh, publicity. And then I said... Well, actually, it's not even thinly veiled. It's published. Um, but the point I'm making aside from that, which is definitely there, is that this all came out of just following that vocation, that encouragement I got right at the start. Um, I think that's a good point to stop. I'm now going to tell you what he told me and more about that interaction and how this whole process began or I will do, after our 10-minute break. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you very much. All right. David Clayton again. (laughs) Thank you. Okay, so uh, I was just thinking about this. What is it that... I saw in him first. How did that first connection come? So much of it, I can't really explain. I had an introduction from friends. Incidentally, there's one other guy here who uh, has his head in his hands. Jim, you just put put your hand up. Okay. So Jim actually is featured in the appendix of the back of the book because he's someone else who met uh, this guy about 18 years ago and did the same things. And it has a similar effect, I, I think that's fair to say, on, on his life. Another convert. So if you want to, afterwards, if you want to just talk about this, you can always ask him. He, he knew him. Um, and exactly the same result happened. I've seen uh, myself, as I say, there were 600 people at his funeral, many I'd never seen before. But I've passed this on myself to 20, 25 people, and I've seen the same results. I know that it works. So what did I see in him? Um, why did I trust him? One was that I had, we had friends in common. Somebody I'd seen had changed, and he said that it's because of this guy uh, who I just met socially. And so I was sort of open to this, and my situation was that um, I really was at a point of despair at, at 25, 26. Uh, I, was, I was whining about life, but I wasn't really telling people how bad it was. And I can remember having this conversation with him. I was introduced to him, we were talking over coffee, and he started to ask questions, ask me questions about myself. What do you do? And What do you feel about that? Um, and, it, and he would just make little remarks that led me to believe that, uh, that he understood how I was feeling. 
Um, and I can remember him also then referring to his own experience, saying, I used to be like this, but this, this changed when I did this. Um, and it, I built up this trust. Um, the other thing that he did, he seemed happy. I discovered later on that he had, this David had, uh, well, he'd had three heart attacks, and it was the fourth, actually, that eventually killed him when he was in his early 70s. Um, he had angina. He walked with a stick. Uh, he was out of breath after about 15 yards. But you just could not tell when you spoke to him. He had this great dignity. Uh, incidentally, he was a, from a very, very aristocratic background, very, very wealthy background. And I think at some stage he'd lost it all and come back to, uh, to God, actually. But um, he, had the same, he talked in exactly the same way. I saw him talking to homeless people, uh, you know, building workers, uh, people working in investment banks, you know, Wall Street bankers who were working in the city of London, and he would talk in exactly the same way. And I was 26, and he used to call me lad. Uh, and initially, I bristled at this until I heard him t- just talk to a Wall Street banker who was running a whole uh, bank. Uh, I mean, he was actually really was at the top of this uh, internationally owned bank, and he called him lad too. Uh, he was utterly unfazed by it, and, and I remember, th- and it, actually it was affectionate, and I remember thinking, this, this guy, he has this sort of absolute sort of sense of ease about himself that I hadn't seen in anybody. Um, and he told me that this was on offer to, to him, to me. This is the point, and what he offered me was a happy life. And he used to say, you, you can have a life beyond your wildest dreams. Uh, and that, the way he induced me into doing this was not by talking about Christianity, not by giving me any aspects of the faith. If he'd done that, I would have run. Okay? I, was ready, I was ready as it was, very suspicious. Um, and uh, n- no mention of tambourines. And so, or, or even morality. He just said, uh, you can have a life beyond your wildest dreams. Um, he said, this is the pearl of great price. I didn't know where he was getting it from, but he said, this is what I, I've been shown, and I'll show this to you. Um, and he told me a little bit about being an artist and how that had developed and that he knew others who had. Um, And he didn't try to persuade me of the truth of it. What he did do was he presented me, I now realise, with Pascal's wager. I didn't know that's what he was doing, but he said, try this for 30 days. He said, I'm going to give you some things to do if you're interested. Um, Try this for 30 days, and if you don't like it, uh, we can return all your misery with interest. And he said that. <laughs> he gave me his phone number and said, call me if things get worse. And then <laughs> and just departed. Of course, they got worse about one minute later because that's the way my life was going. And so I, I thought I'd give him, just give it a try. Um, he even then said, I want you to do something. He said, I want you to write your six wildest dreams on a piece of paper, put that piece of paper in an envelope, put the envelope in a drawer and have a look at it in a year's time. And he says, if you do what I suggest, I am pretty sure that you'll find that you've sold yourself short. Um, and I, I'm not going to tell you what was on that list, but five out of the six came true. I still don't have a million pounds in the bank. But... Uh, The things, even within a year, the whole nature, really it was a shopping list is what I had. 
And I was pretty low in my sights because I didn't really trust that he really meant it. You know, I thought I'll give myself a few things that I might be able to get. Um, but what had changed by the time I looked at it was my whole perception of what was good for me, what I wanted out of life. Many miraculous things happened. Things did change. I'm not underplaying that. You know, things I couldn't imagine. But, but no longer did I see those as the primary source of my happiness. I knew that these were secondary uh, to a relationship with God. Um, and so, as I say, I, I decided to try this wager. And he said, there's one thing I did need to do, and that was to believe in a God of some description, something that wasn't me, and I just had to be willing to believe. My reaction was, that's it. You know, actually, by now, I'm ready to do this, but I cannot flick a switch. Um, and I'm the sort of person that if I'd seen a vision, uh, I'd have just gone straight to the psychiatrist. I wouldn't have believed it anyway. So it was a pointless God sending me one, because I was so cynical, I would not have believed it. Um, but he just said, you just have to be willing. And what I mean by that is, let's work on the assumption that there is a God, and we're going to live a life as though there is for 30 days, and we'll see what sort of life you get. And so he was counting on there being a change within 30 days. This is what he's saying. Now, I'm going to tell you that the, uh, by the end of day one, I could feel a difference in what he was giving me. Um, so I think what I saw in him was the face of Christ, actually. Uh, I didn't know that that's what it was, but I think he was showing me. And as I say, so much of it, it wasn't about learning this patter to connect. It really was about just the way he was. Something about him inspired confidence. I was 26, he was much older than me, um, but he had this sort of air of authority and peace and ease about him that I was ready to believe in. Um, so what did he give me? Initially, a prayer, a routine of prayer. Remember, by now, I'm willing to believe. I would say, okay, I'll behave as though there is one. I'm, I can go that far. I, I can't say, I'm not, I've got no great emotional upheaval, and I've never had one, actually. Uh, the conviction has come through the life of faith and just see just a gradual sense of conviction that it's rooted in something that's true because it works so well. That's over years. Um, and a, so a routine, I'm going to give it to you, prayer and good works, a series of spiritual exercises, once we had that established, where I root out resentment and fear. This is very precise uh, and powerful. Um, and then a process whereby I could discern my personal vocation and a series of concrete actions I could take to follow it with one condition. Uh, it's what we just heard. Pass it on. So this is why I've written these books. This is why I've been driven to do this. Um, and there's one book yet to come, and that's the one that contains all of this. And I've got the manuscript, and we're starting these workshops in, uh, in the East Bay. I live in, uh, near Berkeley, California, uh, and we're doing workshops on discerning what God wants. No, no, I've very carefully said, uh, where we're... Offering it's at St Jerome's Catholic Church, but we're advertised, we advertise it on Meetup.com that we're going to uh, do a series of prayers and spiritual exercises that will help you to discover what you were meant to be rooted in the Western mystical tradition, prayers that come out of medieval monasticism and spirituality. 
That's how we describe it. We've got 45 people signed up. The first meeting is on Wednesday. That's signed up for information. I think about 12 want to come. And they are all doing yoga, shamanism, transcendental meditation. Uh, this is the new agey uh, people in the East Bay. What are they after? Mysticism, which leads to God. They don't know that. But if you, don't, if you use buzzwords like Christianity or the Christian faith, it'll scare a lot of them off. But this is what people want. And they're just like I was. I didn't even know I wanted mysticism. They're a step ahead of me, those people. Haven't met them, so you know, we'll see what they make of the first, uh, the first meeting. But why are we doing this? I want to pass this on. I want to try and find a way that we can evangelise others. I promised David that I would do that when he gave this to me, because he said this had been given to him. Um, okay, so the, the daily routine. Okay, so this is the personal prayer aspect of what Benedict described. And I say, if you want me to, I haven't, I can send, uh, maybe I can, if people are interested, I can give you a printout of these things, okay. So I'm going to read it. And he said, if you do this, it's impossible to have a bad day, he said to me. Um, so in the morning, he said, it's important you get on your knees and ask uh, God or whatever it was I believed in uh, to take care of me today so that I can be of service to him and my fellows. He said, it's not just to look after me, but so I can be of service to others. He said, you must get on your knees. So he said, that's what I did. That's what I was told to do. Uh, very important you take the action so that the whole person is engaged in this prayer. In the evening, he said... Get on your knees again and say thank you, because it's good manners to do so. And he was absolutely adamant that I do that. Um, then he gave me some reactive prayers during the day. Um, if I'm angry or annoyed at somebody, he said, pray for the... He's a word I can't repeat here. And he said, through gritted teeth if necessary, repeatedly like a mantra until you feel better. Okay? Pray for the person. Over and over again. How do you pray for somebody? He said, well, the most powerful one that, that works for me is to say, please, God, give this person everything I would wish for myself. He said, just do that repeatedly until you feel better. I remember once uh, phoning him, and he said, how's it going, lad? And I said, well, not very well. I'm not, I'm not very happy with my boss because... He said, stop. He said, have you prayed for her? I said, no. He said, well, call me back when you have and put the phone in. <laughs> what he wanted to know was that I was taking the actions. Okay? This is all about doing the work and then the change occurs. If we do good things, the good things follow. The, the possession of the good comes by working for it, doing what is good. Um, and then if you're fearful or anxious, he gave me this prayer which he called the serenity prayer. Some of you may have heard it. I believe it was written by Boethius, I heard. God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. And he just said, repeat that again until the fear or anxiety goes away. Um, and he was very, very insistent upon this. We, you have to take the actions. We can talk psych, the psychology as much as you like, but it'll do you no good. Uh, we don't, we're not interested in... Uh, what happened to you when you were a child, if this is how you feel, this is how we deal with it. And the answer is to a, um, the solution is in God. Um, okay, so that, that's very simple. That's the first prayer life. 
And when I would see him, all he wanted to know is, are you doing these things? And it wouldn't take me further until he knew I'd adopted this. Um, Then a process of personal reflection. He told me every day to write a gratitude list, a a list of things to be grateful for. Um, It used to be called counting your blessings. Um, And I said, what have I got to be grateful for? He said, well, let's, let's start. He said, have you eaten today? Okay, food. And he made sure that I said, yes, okay. I see you're wearing clothes, you know, after a fashion, clothes. Um, you've got a bed to sleep in tonight. You've got a roof over your head. Um, clothes, bed, food, roof. He said, right, you've got all that you need. Um, let's stop at that point. Um, and we'll, I want to say to you that you are ahead of a good proportion of the world's population who don't even know where their next meal is coming from. I don't want to hear you complain about your life again. Um, that you have a good life. And here, furthermore, is the written proof that when you ask to be looked after, and, you know, you've told me this is true for you, that uh, you, you are being looked after. Everything else is a luxury. Uh, now... I had plenty of things that I couldn't deal with, and he would talk to me, okay? But he would always refer me back. First of all, have you done this gratitude list? And and he said, this is an incarnational process. The writing of it is is really important, and develop the habit. I know 27 and a half years later, every day, I write out this list. I write those essentials, and then I put... Five more little things, a cup of coffee, meeting some nice people. They can be significant, they can be insignificant. And then I thank God for those, because all that is good comes from God. He also told me to do some spiritual reading every single day. Um, A statement that is an ideal to live by. And again, this is an old meditation. This is prayer and meditation he's giving me. But it's systematic. He's saying, do this. Um, So... Uh, so the, he gave me this uh, statement. I don't, I'm not sure exactly where it came from. You know, just a list, of, like an ideal to live by. It wasn't Christian because I would have reacted against it, but something like the Ten Commandments. Uh, the one I found that was very good was from the rule of Benedict. It, he has this sort of list of how monks behave that looks sort of just generic and good, uh, but anything like that. Uh, now I read the Psalms every day. I do the Liturgy of the Hours and. What this does, St. Paul says, set your sights on heavenly things. Um, Gradually, we move towards this. He didn't say I had to do, you know, match this. He just said, read it. Uh, And not, you know, I didn't have to contemplate it or do anything. He just wanted to know that I read it. Very quick, very easy. Uh, And it's this statement on this card. The the little card he gave me, um, I remember it had... Uh, the little lessons you learn is, you know, I will do something a good, so do someone a good turn, and I won't tell anybody about it. And so I remember, how am I going to do that? So I used to look for opportunities to do things that I wouldn't tell people about. And I used to get the um, the tube to work every day in London, and when you're on the tube, you know, you're sort of crammed in, and you're trying to find somewhere to sit so you can read your book and just sort of escape into your book and then get off when you get to work. But, of course, there's only limited places. So what you're doing, unless you're right, right at the beginning of the line, you climb on and you're looking for who looks like they're twitching or packing their bags to get off at the next stop. You 
sort of sidle over and then jump in, okay? That's what I used to do, anyway. So I thought, right, I'm going to do this good turn. I'm going to sidle over, and then I'm going to let somebody else go in. They won't know it, but I've done them a good turn. I'm not going to tell them. Okay, so I did it, and then I found that quite often other people didn't jump in. Actually, most people did what I was now doing, which was waiting to see if anybody more deserving (laughs) the seat. And occasionally you'd see this guy who would barge his way in and sit down. I think, you, selfish. And then I realised that's what I'd been doing every day up to that point. So there were these little lessons that would come through this. Um, But a lot of this is happening despite myself. You You just find that if you read these ideals to live by, you move towards it. And again... Um, the, the more we lead a good life, the happier we'll be because it's the possession of the good. Um, and then a program of good works. He told me to try and develop a general attitude of seeking to be of service to others, um, to, to seek to give rather than to take, um, to try to do the right thing, is what he described, uh, which really means a good and virtuous life. And at this stage, it was what he told me it was. I was ready to trust him. Uh, I had no moral authority. I'd done as I'd pleased up to that point. Um, and, and as he said to me, what, how, you know, what good has that done you? And I said, well, not much, actually. So he said, well, you know, tell me what you're doing and you know, we'll go through it. And eventually what happened, actually, he said, look, you don't want me as your moral authority. You need to look for something external. And that began a search for religions, really. And I'll tell you about that later on. Um, But at this point, it was him that I was just uh, using as an authority. And then he told me to make a voluntary sacrifice of time, ideally weekly, ideally for people who I'm not connected with, uh, because he said, if we do things for our friends and family, which we ought to do, uh, they're still my friends and my family, and it somehow comes back to me. Now, we should do that, but he's saying the most powerful is doing things for people who aren't in a position to return it. Um, and what's interesting is that I've gi- given this to quite a few people, and surprisingly, once they get to the point where they're ready to discuss this, they'll do all the sort of cerebral stuff, if you like. The thing that they're most reluctant to do is make a sacrifice of time. I can't do that. I'm busy. I've got this. I've got that. You know, people aren't prepared to make the sacrifice of time uh, and volunteer for something. And, and he said, make, make that, you know, don't go to the theatre on that night. That has a precedent in your life. Okay, so those, that's what he told me to do. And I remember getting in, doing this on the first day. Remember, he's given me this Pascal's wager, uh, 30 days and we'll, we'll take stock. Getting to the end of the day, um, remember I had no life of faith up to that point, suddenly starting, and day one had been pretty much the same as day zero. I'd gone to work uh, resented my boss through most of the work and um, got to the end of the day. Difference this time was that under my breath, I was praying for my I had like a sort of dual consciousness. Part of me all day was praying for my boss and the other part was trying to do the work. Um, and <clears throat> it was different. I, I, I can't tell you that, that, you know, I can't prove that this was the, the answer, but I felt different. And this began the life of prayer and the life of faith. That um, Initially, I had hope and nothing else, but the more you experience 
the realization of that hope, it turns into faith. And so this really began the process. Um, I've got a little story to tell you about going to work. Um, I, was, I hated my job. And he said, well, uh, why is that? Why is that, lad? And I said, well, you know, my boss is terrible. He said, well, all bosses are terrible. You know, what, and what he meant was for people like you, because you don't like being told what to do. Uh, and he didn't say that. This is what I realized later. Um, but he said, you, go, you just go in and do your best to do what you're told to do. And then go home and just trust in God. Do your best and let, it, let God do the rest, is what he said. Uh, and I said, well, the, the problem is, you see, I'm a, I'm, I'm a Marxist. And I believe that um, the more work I do, uh, if I'm not paid the value I add to the capital invested to me, I'm being exploited. And he said to me, it's lucky for you, lad, with your attitude, that you're not paid the value you add to the capital <laughs> invested in you. Because you'd probably owe them money. <laughs> and that shut me up, I could tell you. Um, so, we went through that for a few days, and he wanted to know that I was uh, set in this, that, you know, that it was part of my life, that I had that contact. And then we started to do this uh, process, these spiritual exercises. Um, now, this is quite complicated, and again, you, you could spend a whole sort of morning just describing this process, but what it was, I had to, he described to me, he said, look, our unhappiness arises not because of what happens to us. You, I was blaming everybody around me for what was going on, and he said, that isn't the source of our unhappiness, it's our personal reaction to it. Um, and he said, what I want you to do is to, he showed me this process whereby I could explain all the resentments and the fears that I had because of my self-centered reaction. And he showed me how to write this down. My pride, my self-centeredness, you know, there's lots of self-pity there. And we'd relate it, in effect, to sin. Although he didn't call this this, he just said it, these are sort of self-centered impulses to what's going on. So even in the face of injustice, he said, if you feel bad about it, and there is injustice, everything isn't my fault, it happens to me. If I feel bad about it, and I, I'm not that a saint prays and loves his oppressors, doesn't he? Now, that's not me. That's not my reaction. I want to get them. Uh, and he says, the reason you can't strive for that ideal is your self-centeredness. And he, he got me to write all of the resentments and fears down, as I could remember. This is a long process um, and would need a lot of explanation. But it's what, what it's doing, it's actually searching your conscience and rather saying, what have I done wrong, which many people do before they go to confession, it's a good thing to do. This is an additional way of approaching it and saying, how do I feel unhappy? And attributing that to a separation from God caused by our self-centeredness. And then he told me how to analyse this. And remember, I wasn't a Catholic at the stage. I didn't know anything about confession. He just described it in very straightforward terms and said, right, I want you to come and tell me all of this. And in the process, I'm going to say, he asked me some very, very precise questions. Have you ever done this? Do you feel guilty about this? Do you ever done... And I thought, how does he know this? You know, I wasn't ready for this at all. It's like you could see into my mind things that I'd never revealed to anybody. And he just said, well, because you're human. You know, I did this. I've, t- I've taken people through this, and we're all the same. 
Um, it's like trying to scandalise a priest. You, know, they're, 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 you think they're the ones who are going to be most shocked, but they've seen everything and heard everything. Um, and in a way, he was kind of the same. Um, so I went through this process, and the change was dramatic. It tur- going through that totally turned around my whole at- view of life. But suddenly I realised that I was the problem. In fact, he gave me a, a sticker for my shave for the mirror in the morning. He said, put that on your shaving mirror. And he said, you are now looking at the problem. Um, <laughs> and I had to focus on myself and realise this comes down to me. And once I could acknowledge that, I could be free of resentment and fears. And we had to do these prayers together where we asked for forgiveness. Uh, now, all of this is outside the sacramental life at this stage, okay? But... It worked. Uh, All I can say is that it must participate in some way, derive its power from the sacrament, even though um, it's not actually within the sacrament of confession. Um, So that's something I could talk about a long time. And it's through that, by the way, that I began to believe that what he said is true, that we are the creators of our own unhappiness. It's not what you've done to me or what happened to me as a child or what the church is doing wrong or what society is doing wrong. It doesn't matter. I, 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 through this, I, we can have a happy life, even in the face of trials. And his life was an example of that. He had heart attacks. I've had many ups and downs. It, it's not magic. I'm not controlling events around me. Um, to the, amazing things have happened, as I've described. But it's, it's, it's a means whereby I can face what happens with dignity. And there is a grace that transcends the suffering, that you feel consoled. It doesn't even necessarily take away the problems themselves. Very often they're out of our control. But I always have in mind the martyr who's singing the praises of God and praying for those who are uh, cheering as they're burning from the the ankles up. Um, I don't know if you heard that. Do you know the Hilaire Belloc poem with Jim, who was eaten by a lion? It says, just imagine how it feels when first your toes and then your heels... And then by gradual degrees, then your calves and then your knees. The lion ate him bit by bit. And he says, no wonder Jim detested it. But <laughs> um, in a way, that's kind of what I always think of the saints, the martyrs, you know, burning yet praising their oppressors. How can they do it? They feel the pain, but there's something that transcends it. It's, there's a greater consolation. It's not uh, one that removes it. And... That's something. That's what Benedict was describing. That you know, we, we, when we uh, show Christ through what our suffering in life, it's not that we're miserable. It's that we, there is a joy which transcends it, which is greater than it. Uh, and I began to see that by degrees, if you like, that this was possible for all of us. Um, then a plan of action. Okay, so having done this, by the way, I had to go and make amends, restitution for all the people I'd harmed. That was a, uh, that cropped up in this process and asked for forgiveness. That was pretty difficult, I can tell you. That's a whole story as well. Um, at this stage, then, uh, he felt we were ready to d- learn this pr- uh, process of discernment of the vocation. But before we did this, he always used to do something with the people that he was showing this process through. He used to pay to all of them to go for a meal um, and then to a concert at the Royal Festival Hall in London, the home of the London Symphony Orchestra. 
and it always had to be either Mozart or Bach or Beethoven. <laughs> and especially people, as I say, he dealt with people who were, sometimes they were homeless, sometimes they were bankers, very, no background in this at all. But I re- now realise that what he believed is that the beauty of this would uh, draw people to God. And I remember once doing this with a guy who was a, um, a building worker, actually, a friend of mine. And so I decided to do the same thing. And we went to see the Magic Flute at English National Opera. This guy had never been to an opera in his life. <clears throat> and he really enjoyed it. And I remember hearing him tell somebody about it afterwards. And he would say, I just went to this opera. And he said he was a, from North London. Everybody knows the Cockney. He said, I'll tell you what, he said. It was the most beautifulest thing what I ever saw. <laughs> um, you realise that this beauty can transport people. And this is what David wanted to show them when he took everyone, he took to the Royal Festival Hall and would treat them to this meal at the restaurant in the, in the theatre beforehand. Okay. So what's this process of discernment? The assumption behind this was, as he said, God wants you to be happy. Um, and he makes it easy for you to know when you're happy. Discerning what he wants to do is not a process where we agonise. Uh, he's not playing games with us. So he said, and I thought this was brilliant when I heard it. He said, this is what I want you to do. He said, now that you've got this connection with God, he said, imagine that you inherited so much money, uh, a million pounds. And I remember thinking, well, I've already imagined that I'd get a million pounds. It hasn't happened. <laughs> he said, never mind. Imagine that you inherit a, so much money that you never have to work again for the money. What activity would you choose to do nine to five, five days a week? And so lots of people say, well, does it have to be spiritual? He said, no, no, keep it simple, lad, keep it simple. Uh, What would you enjoy doing? And his assumption was, as long as it wasn't inherently bad, if I'd said I want to run the largest chain of brothels in Britain, he might say, that's not a good idea. Uh, But as long as it's not inherently immoral or bad, then there's no reason to believe it isn't what God wants you to do. And this is what he should strive to do. So I said, paint. He said, okay, that's what you do. And I thought, great, how am I going to do this? And he said, this is what you do. You focus on the end result. Uh, If you can, write write it out so it crystallizes in your mind. Don't build a path, work out the whole path towards it. He said, all you do is take the first step and you worry about the, the second step after you've done the first. And if this is what you're meant to do, other doors will open in front of you. And, um, and he said, first, there's other things. I've got a list of sort of eight principles. And I, I, as I, I won't read them out, but as I say, I'll send this to anybody. But you, d- you don't do anything that's reckless or foolhardy. You've got to pay the bills. You've got to meet the responsibilities of life. So if you've got a, you know, if you're the person who supports the family, you don't say, that's it, I'm giving everything up to be an artist. You have to do that. And, he, and he's, he always used to say to me, where does it say that this is true for everybody except those who are married? Only the single people can strive for what they want to do. That, that if God is in our life, he shows us the way to make this possible if we trust in him. Um, and we do sensible things, but the only thing that other people wouldn't understand is the starting assumption that this is possible. And so what was my first step? 
Uh, it was signing on doing e uh, life drawing classes at Chelsea College of Art every Wednesday evening. And I remember thinking, well, I, I can't afford to go to art school. I'm never going to be able to do this. Uh, it's going to take me about 85 years of evening classes every Wednesday to be able to get enough qualification to get an art degree. And then when I've got an art degree, I've got to go and get a, a further degree. And even then, it's only about one in 10 people in the whole of Britain earn a living as an artist. And he said, look, stop, stop that. He said, just take the first step. Um, it doesn't work like that. What will happen is, if this is meant to be, God will give you people um, and will show you the way. And that is one thing. If I'm ever invited back, I would love to tell you that path. Uh, I'm going to tell you one story in connection with that. But the, the, the way that the whole thing has worked is, is amazing. So um, I was trying to be an icon painter. I eventually, and years later, I got a job as a... Um, sub-editor, a proofreader at the Sunday Times. And I got that job because I could do shift work and I thought it might give me time to paint. Uh, I got it through the guy who I played tennis with and he gave me the job on the strength of our conversations you know, between sets as we crossed over. In the t uh, I could barely punctuate and I still to this day don't know why they kept me on. Um, they gave me a chance and I eventually learned to do it. Um, one day, and you realise this when you're in newspapers, this is the Sunday Times, but I was, I was subbing for the Times, the sister paper, the Times of London, suddenly found myself in this office. And when they say people everywhere are talking about this great new trend, it's not people everywhere, it's the half dozen people in the office thinking, what are we going to write about this week? Do you know anything? And so that is what they, when you see that phrase, that's what they mean, okay? And so one week, they, had, they were doing this article on... Um, it was called, for the Saturday supplement, Somebody's Got to Do It, People Who Do Unusual Jobs. Uh, the previous week was a lady who did colonic irrigation for spiritual purposes. Okay, that was the, that was the strange job. And they said, what are we going to do this week? And so, what, what do you do, David? And I said, well, I paint icons. It's made, okay, that'll do. So, they... I, I appeared after the woman doing colonic irrigation as the icon painter, okay, in the national paper, the Times of London. The Guardian, which is another national paper, read the article in the Times of London. They phoned me up and said, we want an icon painter. Some, yeah, this looks good for our educational supplement the week after next. Can we send someone round to photograph you? So... I said, okay, fine, yes. So the following week, I was on the front page of The Guardian. Um, when I came to live here, uh, I got my visa on the strength that I was a nationally known artist. Okay, at this point, I'd had one commission in my life, all right? Um, but that's how, these, that's, that's how these things happen. I, I've got a, a million stories like that where the, the doors sort of opened. Um, now, the other thing he said to me is that there's only one reason why you won't succeed in this, and that's because something better happens. He says, what, your goal is not a maximum, it's a minimum. He said, most people along the way, they discover something that they, never, they couldn't have imagined at the beginning of the journey because they just had no idea that it was possible. And so you'll probably go off in a different direction 
and find out what you're doing. But you take the first step. You've got to take that action. It's a leap of faith, and then God does the rest, and it just opens up. And that has been my experience. I say, it it does sound a bit like, you know these um, books like Think and Grow Rich or The Secret? Okay, don't be confused. That's not what he was giving me. In those, the whole process is inverted. They're talking about a, a, a divine force which you control. You're at the top of the pyramid through positive thinking. Okay, this is a faith-based process where you, subdue, you, know, you are aligning yourself with the will of God, one who is greater. Um, and ultimately, it's down to God's grace and God's love what you get. You're not controlling him. You're allowing him to guide you. Um, and it may be what you want. It may not be. It, for the martyrs, that goal was death or that the end result was death. And I don't think that's what they were striving for. Okay, so it may not be precisely what we're looking for, but it is the path of joy. And we're not immune to foolishness and selfishness. We can do all sorts of things can happen just flying out of nowhere that are bad, or we can be the cause of bad things. But always, from any position we're in, we can always move towards something better and a greater good can come out of it. And that's what I've discovered is true. You know, I've had difficult things to deal with, but with this process, I've been able to deal with them. Okay. So, again, that is something I could spend a whole two hours just talking about that discernment process and the stories I have. Um, where does this come in? This is the Brompton Oratory. There's a story in the book, The Little Oratory, uh, where I walk into the church. Now, what I don't say in that book I described the story where what happened was this was so this process was so spectacular, and David had sort said to me, "You know you need some sort of authority for morality that you can recognize." So I started to investigate religions and faiths and look for a code of morality, <clears throat> and I um, eventually narrowed it down to Islam and Christianity. Uh, I, I was looking solely at morality. And, I, and all the time, for, I want to say, David had never mentioned he was a Catholic, okay? He'd never said that once. I had no idea until I'd known him for about four years that he was. Uh, because he knew that if, I'd, if he'd mentioned that, I'd have, got, I'd have run. So, I can't believe, just ten minutes, okay. Um, so, anyway, I, was, I told him, I, was, I decided eventually that this, my measure of truth, by the way, was what I'd been through my experience. I thought, I know this works. And I found that what he'd given me corresponded to Christianity. He let me draw that conclusion. So then I started to investigate churches. And he said, and, and I can still remember, I think, you know, I'm looking at Christianity, but he said, oh, okay, lad. He said, uh, why don't you go to this church at 11 o'clock tomorrow, Sunday? And he didn't say anything more. And then we had a conversation about something else. At the end, I can still remember, as we said goodbye, he said, by the way, lad, make sure you go at 11 o'clock. And so I went, and the church he directed me to was the Brompton Oratory, which has the most beautiful mass I have ever seen in my life. I'll describe the spirit. I haven't got time, but it took my breath away. And this was the the dimension which I'd not yet realized, the worship of God. What he'd given me so far was personal prayer, good works, uh, the development of a faith. But through that, there were incarnational elements built into that which primed me 
to be ready for what I saw in that church. And it's, and it's still, I think, the most beautiful, the beautiful mass. It was Novus Ordo, Latin ad orientem, uh, with a choir that is the, simply the best I've ever heard. They were singing Palestrina and doing Gregorian chant, uh, and it transported me. So the, the very quick story is that led me to Catholicism and an institutional religion and then Catholicism, and I started to go along there. So there is the, there's the inside of the Brompton Oratory. Uh, and I, there's a whole experience. I haven't got time to go into it, but uh, very beautiful. Uh, and I started to see one of the priests there. And there was a men's group in the little oratory. The book is deliberately named after this. Okay, it wasn't an accident. In fact, the publisher said, no one will know what it is. I said, look, I want this. Uh, it's a house of prayer. It, it, it'll be fine. Uh, the little oratory, was a, there was a men's group, and we used to have uh, a talk, and then we would sing Compline, and then there would be silent meditation. And I, I remember that there was the Compline that I really loved, the chanting of the psalms. And so I've always done the Liturgy of the Hours, and you'll see me uh, advocate that very, very strongly. I realise the, the next most important thing after meeting David and then being received into the church was the discovery of the Liturgy of the Hours in my life. It was one of those experiences where once I started to do it, just like those first prayers, I thought, this is different. I, I can, this is opening up my life in front of me. I can't say why but the day has been better. It's been easier. Um, and it was introduced to me through the fathers of the, of the London Oratory. We also had this contemplative prayer. And uh, I didn't know what to do. <laughs> I, I mean, you were just left in silence. And I think, you know, what am I supposed to do here? And um, I wondered about meditation and I did lots of investigation. Very, very confusing, actually, when you read about it. So much of even the Christian stuff is tinged with Eastern uh, meditation. I notice you have these lectures uh, uh, on the, the errors of Buddhism and yoga and the sort of Eastern meditative styles. Um, now, uh, I, I, agree with that. I agree with that wholeheartedly. There's something good in those things, but what these people, like the East Bay New Ages, what they need to realize is that the fullness of what they're looking for is in Christian prayer, which includes meditation and contemplation. And my understanding of this, I, eventually I found a very good book written by somebody called Dr. Tim Gray, who teaches at the Augustine Institute on Lexio Divina. Very practical, straightforward. And then also I talked to a monk at a Benedictine Abbey in Massachusetts. And he just met, said, you do this, you do this, you do this, you do this. So there's these stages of all the, the, the med meditation and contemplation that I see in the Christian tradition starts with meditation, which is an active process. It means think. It's, we're using our reason. We're formulating thoughts, fixing them on uh, heavenly things. And then the contemplation is receptive, the receptive mode by which God, if he chooses to make himself known, may do so. He may not. Uh, so I will sit silently. I try and do, and I use images rather than the word, actually, um, 
which Claire of Assisi developed an equivalent thing, which I heard could be called conspexio divina. And again, this is good to be part of your prayer life. Um, but the point about it is not how we feel during the process, in my understanding. This is developing this, this facility to raise up our hearts and minds to God and be receptive to him. Where is that? Now, that in itself, that God can make himself known to us and we can have uh, a foretaste of the beatific vision, like St. Teresa of Avila or something. Um, but uh, wh- where, what is the end of this? It's in the liturgy. Where, where do we have this dynamic of giving ourselves with God's help and then receiving God back and receiving and giving. God gives first, actually. Okay, so it's developing that facility. It's, it's practicing for a deeper participation in the worship of God, which is the, the, the activity that we're, we do in heaven par excellence. So it's, it's not about the, how we feel during the process itself. And it's not an internal do-nothing process like Eastern meditation It's one where we extend ourselves and we are receptive, which itself, as Benedict described it in one of his encyclicals, I think it's Deus Caritas Est, or the one Caritas in Veritata, is it called? Where he talks about this agape eros dynamic, the dynamic of love. But even the reception of love is, is, it's not passive, it's an activity of receiving, if you see what I mean. So it's it's something that we are active even when being receptive. So very different from Eastern meditation. Okay. So through this, we hope to become the new evangelist. This is my chivalrous man, chivalrous knight in the Gothic style with his, see the divine office there? Uh, He's praying it uh, with the sword of truth, ready to go out and deal with uh, the wider culture uh, through prayer in the home. And dads, uh, we can take the lead in the home. Uh, Men, we can take the lead uh, as much as possible. Um, Now, that's not to say that women shouldn't be doing it, but I I mention that because it's something that, uh, on the whole, men are reluctant to do, is to take the lead on this. And uh, particularly, uh, I've been involved, and we're trying to get things up with Pontifex, actually, where we're, we're offering ways of singing and chanting the psalms that have a masculine feel to them. They're rooted in tradition um, so that it will encourage men to do it. Okay. So just, this is just a reminder of that initial quote. And you can see that this is exactly what David gave to me. My brothers, I implore you by God's mercy to offer your very selves to him, a living sacrifice dedicated and fit for his acceptance, the worship offered by mind and heart. Adapt yourselves no longer to the pattern of this present world but let your minds be remade and your whole nature thus transformed. David had been transformed and he showed me how to be remade right from the very start. And the measure of this really is you're aware of the change. This is not about a technical process whereby we do what we're supposed to do to tick the boxes. It leads to a happier life and a better life. Then you will be able to discern the will of God. We can discern our personal vocation and know what is good, acceptable, and perfect. Uh, And remember, we're living that vocation today. That's what he said to me. You must be happy today, regardless of the situation, because even if you get everything you're looking for, if you're not happy today, you won't be happy then either. So we must do these things. 
<coughs> now, I just finish. I've got about three minutes. Um, even education, I discovered, that this is basically is the process but that makes an artist open to inspiration, is the supernatural transformation. It's just traditional Catholic spirituality, Christian spirituality, East and West. Um, and Benedict says the aim of all Christian education is to train the believer in an adult faith that make him a new creation. We see what that word means now. This is what school ought to be about. Capable of bearing witness in his surroundings to the Christian hope that inspires him. The name for that is mystagogy. And he's saying this is what every general education should be about. Teaching us to worship God so that the, the end of everything is liturgical. Even vocational things actually have, they enable us to be of service to, to our fellows. We grow in love and then we have more to offer in the, in the worship of God. It's all in, interconnected. And the greatest teacher is God himself. Now, a long quote. I'm just going to read this through. Pius XI, talking about education. The proper, and I discovered all of this when I was doing, looking into the way that artists used to be formed. And I wanted to make an argument when I discovered this stuff that I've just told you about. A lot of it was, was what I've just been describing to you. And I thought, this is the spiritual formation model. It should be part of every education. It's not. I don't, I don't see people referring to the liturgy in this way and talking about supernatural transformation. They talk about growth in virtue, but not supernatural transformation. And then I found that Benedict and his Pius XI were saying, it, it should be. This is what every education, not just the education of artists, should be. The proper and immediate end of Christian education is to cooperate with divine grace Informing the true and perfect Christian, that is to form Christ himself in those regenerated by baptism. For precisely this reason, Christian education takes in the whole aggregate of human life. So we do learn things to get us, help us get a job as well. Physical and spiritual, intellectual and moral, individual, domestic and social. Not with a view of reducing it in any way, but to order to elevate it. It gives everything a purpose for the Christian it, the most mundane thing has a purpose through this. Um, regulate and perfect it in accordance with the example and teaching of Christ. Hence the true Christian. Product of Christian education is the supernatural man. Again, we know what that means now. Who thinks, judges and acts constantly and consistently in accordance with right reason. Illumined by the supernatural light of the example and teaching of Christ. In other words, to use the current term, 1929, the true and finished man of character. So what's next? Well, um, it's my book, which I'm going to call The Vision for You, which contains a detailed description. I think uh, there's enough of the sort of pr preparatory stuff. And I'd always planned these three books. First of all, the prayer in the family, where you put into practice what I'm describing. Um, the, the role of this in education. And I describe in my book how all of this is incorporated into education which, of course, can be then part of what you offer through the family. Um, and then the final one is the, are these, the details of these exercises and prayers that I was given initially that not only will benefit us, and I think especially, for example, people ought to do what I was given before they go to university, not pay, get into whatever it is, $180,000 of debt for a degree and then they discover that, that wasn't what they wanted to do anyway. Okay? 
you could do this before you go and it would help you to, to discern what you're meant to do. This is of interest to artists particularly. Remember, this, this is uh, lots of people wondering how to be an artist. Like so many people, this is why I wrote a little blog piece about this, and so many people came back and said, how do you do this? And so I thought, right, I want to, that is the end. But no one's going to believe me until I've got something to show for it beforehand. I'm not going to have any authority. So I feel now I might have enough. And so we're starting these workshops. It's offered free there, but I hope to produce the materials where we can get this out. Um, and we'll just see how it goes. But this is part of what... Of course, the, the, the most recent project is this Masters in Sacred Arts, which is a, a formation in beauty, really, for artists. But really, we have in mind everybody. It's a formation for the new evangelization. Um, and... Also patrons of the arts. We, we thought that we could, this would be of particular interest. But the principles that underlie it are exactly what I'm describing to you. Uh, you can see that I believe that everybody could benefit from this, whether they get it through the workshops, through this, or through the books. Um, but uh, we felt that the first people who might be prepared to listen would be artists, because I'm an artist, and to some degree they're going to trust me when I say, I think this might help you. Um, so that's how we've started. Um, and that, I think, that's it, yeah. We've just reached the end. So I think I've got about a minute left. So thank you very much for coming here. Thank you. Thank you very much. That was great. We had a little mini retreat tonight. So uh, we can go home and put it into action. Uh, Professor Clayton mentioned his uh, talk that he gave previously here, Praying Constantly, a practicum on the divine office. We have this CD back there, so make sure you pick it up, all right? Put it into action, put it into your life. After I listened to this, I was praying the uh, divine office on my own, and after listening to this and listening to what Professor Clayton suggested, I've incorporated it into our family prayer. So after dinner... We pray the uh, evening prayer together as a family, and it's been amazing to see my children, my little children, uh, get wrapped up in this prayer, and, and I can see the effects it's going to have on them if we continue it. So listen to it. It's great stuff. It's gold. Come on back for question and answer. All right, who's first? Okay, I have two questions. First, when does your book come out? And second, is it in a form that we could give to someone who needs it, or is it better to, long distance, try to step somebody through? Right, it's, uh, that's a good question. When it's, is it coming out? I've, somebody's proofreading it, and I'm th- I was thinking, uh, I did submit to a couple of publishers, and you can see they're looking at this thinking, you know, how can we trust this guy? There's, you know, it's a it's a lot of personal experience to prayer. and So I think I might self-publish. Uh, and I think it, if it's got any value, it'll gain ground. Is, is the way, and it's quite easy to do that. So probably in the next few months. Um, now, as regards actually doing the process, um, I, it may work. As you can, see, you can tell, that uh, this works really with one person leading another. And David encouraged those who he'd shown how to do it to go on and help others. And so 
I've got experience of doing it. Jim's got experience of helping others as well. And really, that's the ideal. So I think that's why we started these workshops, and maybe then uh, we'll transmit it through that. What I thought is that the book will, will act as a sort of record that will preserve this, um, and probably will act as an aid to those people working together. Now, there may be some who will read it and be able to do it, but I think it's unlike... I, mean, I can tell you that process, those spiritual exercises, for example, it's very detailed, and it's something that, it, with a couple of hours of somebody leading you through it, and you have to get into very, very personal stuff in order to get people to open up. And very difficult to put that in writing and to, to give people a sense of what it is. Very, it's much easier with personal connection. So I anticipate that it will be something that will uh, preserve the way that it's done for those... It will be like a sort of additional material to workshops. This is assuming that anybody's interested in doing it. It'll catch on, of course. You just don't know. But, um, but it's, it would be something... I mean, that's the other thing. I was thinking, well, maybe we could offer webinars. I know I'm sort of, sort of thinking of organising uh, something like that. Where, um, but... Uh, in the long run, you hope that what happens is that these, this group that we're doing in the East Bay, th- this might catch on and will develop, and so that you get a network of people doing this one-on-one. Um, so we'll see is the answer, I, how it develops. Yeah. Hi, hi, Professor Clayton. Hello. Yeah. Uh, so uh, I was just curious if you uh, have any, any experience with... Uh, uh, a place as a group or a church, perhaps this is what the little oratory da- did, uh, but praying the divine office uh, in a church setting uh, as opposed to in the home. I mean, I, I, I both are good, but I mean, uh, I've seen at Holy Transfiguration the, the benefit of, of, of doing that. And I, uh, I have, yes. And I'm also, I'm a Benedictine oblate, uh, although the, the Benedictine monastery is in Scotland. I haven't visited for many years, but it was... Um, it was at the oratory that was in a church environment. They had Sunday Vespers there. Um, well, they, they have Sunday Vespers. Uh, and then I would go to monasteries where they live their life according to the office. And so I see that what goes on in the home as something that is an extension of and, so, and a participation in, which is happening in the fullness, if you like, in the church. Uh, and this is why the... Uh, really, the the religious are so important to the churches that they're the ones. Uh, priests and religious have to maintain this, but religious, of course, uh, do do it in community, which is so much more powerful. Um, the way of incorporating this, uh, these groups, by the way, that we're we're organising, we have this sort of workshops on the spiritual exercises, and then we say those who wish to can now leave, but we're going to sing evening prayer. And then we do Vespers according to the Anglican use uh, after that. Um, and again, we'll see what people think about it. Uh, but the goal really is, to, is for then people to start seeing where do we go next? And I would then start directing them to places where this is done well and beautifully. And I, I see, yeah, I mean, I would say that ideally in people's lives, there's a participation in a formal Vespers somewhere as, as well if they can. Yeah. yeah. Hi, good evening. I wanted to ask, um, why is it that we hear so little about 
the liturgy of the hours in our parishes when there are so many benefits that could be gained from them? Okay. Uh, why? This is my personal view, uh, so uh, I might be wrong. So I've, there's a caveat there. This does not represent the views of the Institute of Catholic Culture. Um, <laughs> it fell out of use in, amongst Catholics particularly. I, I don't know about the Eastern Rites, but... Um, and I think... And I, I, if you read the spirit of the liturgy, but Benedict talks about the separation between the culture of faith and the wider culture. My personal belief is that what has a lot to do with that is the fact that the Liturgy of the Hours ceased to be part of people's personal piety. Why would this be? Well, I think it's because uh, in order to pray the Liturgy of the Hours, most people need the vernacular. Um, And it wasn't possible to do it in the vernacular until very recently. So what happened was... It tended to be replaced by traditional Catholics. You had a piety of mass devotions with the rosary uh, and personal piety. That's very good, but it's not as powerful as the Liturgy of the Hours. Now, what has happened since the Second Vatican Council? Whatever you feel about as Roman, the, the, I'm talking to the Roman Catholics now, I'm sure we've got some Melkites here, but, um, about the Latin in the mass, and I'm a great advocate of that, I think for the Liturgy of the Hours, it is one of the huge blessings that this has now become available in the vernacular because it is possible for lay people and now the church is encouraging people to do it. Even then, there is a difficulty that you have... Um, some, a lot of, there's a sort of clericalism which says... That you, I've actually heard people say, well, it's not for lay people, it's for priests. Okay? Uh, you then get people who want to see Latin and are worried that if they promote something where either they'll pray the office in Latin, but I think even they know that not many people are going to be able to do that realistically. And so um, they don't want to allow for the, you know, concede the fact that something in the vernacular has value. And so I find that a lot of traditionalists, some, and I'm sure there are people here who who consider themselves traditionalists, but some would would say uh, the traditional... uh, Piety is mass rosary and then devotions, okay? Um, And I've actually heard people say that they don't want things done well in English because it would discourage people from doing Latin. Now, I think the goal is to pray. And we've got to get over that. You know, either we we we, we develop an education where people are so fluent in the language of the liturgy that they can read it. Now, with the mass, it's not the same problem because so much of it is repeated, we can, we can genuinely pray. You get, even if you don't know what each individual word means, it's possible. You know, you know what's going on, you know what's happening. You're used, but I don't think for the Psalms it's possible. And when you read the deliberations of the Church Fathers, for example, the Fathers of the Second Vatican Council, this is what they're saying. They were saying that even the priests don't really understand what they're doing. And they're just doing the words. And it becomes magic. Uh, that, it's superstition, basically. Um, now, then what happened is that because of what happened in the 60s and 70s, there was a general sentiment, even though the office came out, for example, the version of the office that is standard in English for the US um, is not even set out to sing it. So it becomes something which is said 
very, very difficult to chant it. It's, it's almost as if it's been deliberately set out to stop traditional chant. I, I don't know if that was the intention, but it looks to me a bit like... I mean, if I wanted to do that, I would have come up with something like that. Let's put it like that. So, um, so uh, and I do think that the chanting of it is important. It, as, as we just heard from Dan, it, it makes a huge difference when you're doing it with others and singing it. And not just, it doesn't just become a silent meditation. Um, so those are my reasons. <laughs> Professor Clayton, I noticed that you mentioned um, joy and happiness um, during your talk. I was wondering... How can um, everyone, not only just us here, but the whole universal church and those who are not here at present, how can you explain this um, this one and being with one being one in communion with the whole world, including including the poor? How how can this relate to them as well as to us? Um. Well, that's a good question. So you're saying, how can we explain to people that this is on offer to them, regardless of the situation, if I've understood what you're saying correctly? Um, and I, th- I think that really we can't. What we hope is that people see, us, see something in us in the way that we behave. Um, and it, it doesn't mean that we don't worry about alleviation of poverty, for example. What I'm saying is that it's, it's all of these things plus what I've described. But um, the, the, if, if we're worried that, uh, you know, I, I might say, well, I don't seem to be having this great effect. You know, I'm doing all these things. Uh, David had 600 people at his funeral. How many people are going to turn up at mine? You know, am I actually affecting anybody's life? Uh, the answer is you just don't know. Uh, the, it's very often the impact you can have. And if I think about the, my own conversion, there were other people who had an impact on me who I knew were Catholic, who didn't really talk about it very much, but they let me know they were Catholic. And um, I felt they had something about them that, that came from their being Catholic that was worth having. I didn't tell them that. I was certainly not for a long, long time even about to concede that point. I would never have admitted it. Um, but they had an effect on me. And I think that is the persuasion. It, it's just the example that we are um, more than anything. And we pray and pray that God's grace will work in their, in their lives. Thank you, Professor Clayton. Thank you. Thank you. All right. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist. Pray for us.